And he believed that poker held the key to strategic human decision-making because it mirrored life. It was a game of incomplete information. It was a game where you had to make the best decision you could in an uncertain environment, knowing that the environment might change, knowing that you might make the best decision and still have a bad outcome, seeing, knowing that you can make a good decision and still have a bad outcome and a bad decision and have a good outcome, that both of these things are possible. And he said, that's life. Life isn't chess, life isn't go, life is poker. Hi, and welcome. It's Runchex, and you're listening to my podcast where I explore the topics around what it takes to become a great poker player with various interesting people from in and around poker industry. Today, my guest is Maria Kornikova. She is a best-selling author and a successful poker player. She got into poker as a research project for her book, got mentored by Eric Seidel, Phil Galfond, and several other highly successful poker players, and ended up winning a prestigious poker tournament. So there is so much to learn from her about studying poker, about how to make decisions, and how to make the game more appealing for wider audience. So please enjoy this conversation. Yeah, well, Maria, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And um, of course, your book is coming out. Uh, that's exciting. So I've, I've seen you... Uh, Pretty much everywhere, wherever I looked, uh, you know, articles, podcast interviews, and it's great because your story is so special. It's uh, it's such a fascinating story. I wanted to talk to you for quite some time already because I always found what you've done so inspiring. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And let me just kind of zoom in and specifically what I find so inspiring and of of the record we already talked a tiny bit about it that you know what you've done is in a short really short period of time you actually managed to become uh, a solid poker player by purposefully studying the game and going for it and and that's something that a lot of people aspire to a lot of people dedicate a lot of their time with different tools with different study techniques and yet so many fall short of that goal. Could you talk me through a bit of what was your approach? Uh, Basically, yes. What was your approach? Well, I think that I came to it quite differently from most poker players in the sense that I'd really never played poker before. So I was really starting from zero. And most people, and I wasn't a games player. I think most most people who I've met in the poker world have played for a very long time. You know, they they played casually as kids. They Their parents played with them. You know, their grandparents taught them. Um, they played Magic the Gathering and then went to poker. You know, they, they're, they're people who've been thinking about games for a long time. They played chess or, or something else. That wasn't me. And so I brought a complete outsider's perspective and background and just, I think, a, a f- completely fresh set of eyes. I had no bad habits. I had no good habits. I had no habits whatsoever. Um, instead, I came to it just wanting to learn this completely new thing to speak a new language. And I... I think brought with it with me several skills. Um, one, my background in psychology, and I didn't just get a PhD in psychology. I studied dis- risky decision making under conditions of uncertainty, 
hot emotional decision making. I mean, I had, you know, for five years, I, I looked at how people behaved under all sorts of risky conditions and stressful conditions. And knew a lot of the theory behind that. And I had people play stock market games because I didn't know what poker was at the time, but it's a very similar environment to the poker table. So I think that my theoretical knowledge was particularly well-suited for poker. And as um, my the person who became my coach and mentor, Eric Seidel, told me, which I didn't realize was a skill, I speak many languages. Um, and I'm someone who's fairly good and fairly quick at learning languages and picking up languages. And he told me that this was going to be very good for poker because poker is almost like learning a new language. And a lot of those abilities are aligned. I didn't realize that that was going to be an asset, but it made sense once he said it. So I think that those things helped. And of course, let's not underestimate the fact that I was working with Eric Seidel, who is one of the greatest players in the game. And that he was able to teach me from zero. He didn't have to correct bad thoughts, bad habits, anything like that. He just taught me how to think. He taught me how to approach situations. And the way that he did it was so wise and so inspiring that I think it helped me learn much faster. And he also introduced me to so many other great poker minds that were very willing to help and to work with me. So I had the you know, I had the rare privilege of you know when I had a math question I could text Jason Kuhn or Ike Axton and have them have them solve it for me and have them talk me through it. When I wanted you know some strategic advice from a different perspective from Eric's I'd get on the phone with Phil Galfond. I mean I had some of the best players in the world all working with me and all helping me and all cheering for me to succeed. And that was invaluable. And I think finally I'm actually, it's not just a question of time, but I'm someone who's always been good at studying. I'm someone who's good at synthesizing information. It's just, it's a skill that I've acquired over time. I'm very capable of sitting in my chair for 10 hours and studying and doing hard work. Um, and when I, when I did this, when I took on this project, I did it completely. I left the New Yorker and I said, I'm going to focus on this every single day. So seven days a week, seven, eight, nine, 10 hours a day, I would be either playing or studying or watching videos and reviewing hands. I was thinking, living, breathing poker in order to ramp up and in order to make up for the fact that I was coming in from zero in order to get as much experience as quickly as possible. Hmm. Very interesting. You know what? There's so many things I want to touch upon here because, uh, yeah, there's, there's going to quite going to be quite a few follow-up questions here. But, <laughs> sure. uh, let's start with, you've mentioned you, when you decided to take on the project, you you quit everything else. But my question is, why did you decide to take on the, the project? Why was it interesting for you to go into researching this field? Well, it wasn't really researching this field as much as learning how to play. And the reason I, I decided to do this was because I was interested in the nature of luck and the role that luck plays in our lives and learning to tell the difference between what we can control and what we can't control. Um, I came across poker specifically through game theory, through John von Neumann's theory of games. I learned that John von Neumann wasn't just a poker player, but was someone who 
was inspired by poker. So poker was the foundation of game theory. And he believed that poker held the key to strategic human decision-making because it mirrored life. It was a game of incomplete information. It was a game where you had to make the best decision you could in an uncertain environment, knowing that the environment might change, knowing that you might make the best decision and still have a bad outcome, seeing, knowing that you can make a good decision and still have a bad outcome and a bad decision and have a good outcome, that both of these things are possible. And he said, that's life. Life isn't chess. Life isn't go. Life is poker. And when I read that, I thought I need to read more about poker. I did. And I decided that this was going to be the book that I was going to get someone. It ended up being Eric to teach me. I was going to immerse myself in this world and see what I could find, see what I could determine about the limits of my own abilities, where skill ends and chance begins. Hmm. What Just one um, thing that you've mentioned I found very interesting, uh, that you need to, well, we all need to uh, learn to tell the difference between what is luck and what is not luck. And for that, poker definitely is a great great field of research because oftentimes even the you know seasoned professionals still attribute things to luck which are clearly just bad decision making and you know some people well rarely but sometimes you know go the other way um absolutely so you've studied decision making and risky decision making at that mm -hmm. um what parts of the decision-making in, uh, in poker are the most complex, in your opinion? I mean, it, I think it depends on who you are. I think that poker is a game that gets very complex very quickly if you're thinking about it on a deep level. And the more you know, the more complex it becomes. So for me, poker has become harder and harder and harder the longer I've played because I see more and more layers there. And of course, there's kind of the the mathematical elements but that's not that's not my strength i mean that's never that never was where i focused eventually yes i did buy po solver and learned how to use it and worked with jason kuhn to figure out you know how do you run these how do you set them up how do you read the outputs and of course when if you want to be competitive these days at the highest levels you have to do that so i did but that's never going to be the way that i differentiate myself um to me the complexity lies in the human elements, in figuring out what people are thinking, what they're thinking about you, what they're thinking about themselves, reading the dynamics at the table, all of those iterative thoughts, you know, what does he know that I know? What does he know that he, I know that he knows that I know that, you know, you can just go back and forth and back and forth an infinite number of times. And the strategy gets more and more complex the, the deeper you think. And I think that the two together are what make the game so interesting and so constantly challenging because it's not like you can figure out, okay, this is how I play this hand in this position, done. There, that's, that doesn't exist. There's no. Eric taught me very, very early on that if anyone ever tells you something like that, they're not someone you should ever listen to because that's just that's false. It will always depend on the circumstances. It will depend on who you are, on who the other players are, on what the dynamic is, on what the history there is, on what's going on, on this particular hand, on, you know, on all of these different nuances of human behavior that you can't predict in advance. And so the most important thing is to have a solid thought process so that you know how to break these elements down so that you can make the right decision or the best decision possible 
And that might be a different decision with the exact same two cards on two different occasions. Hmm. Yeah, it brings to mind uh, the quote that you put in from Eric uh, in your article in, in The Atlantic, which is, by the way, a fantastic article, and I Thank highly you. recommend everybody reading it. But if I remember correctly, the quote was, Eric said, less certainty, more inquiry. Yep. That's a, is, it's a wonderful quote. Yes. Um, yes. And if you like the Atlantic article, may I recommend you actually buy the book because that's what's, help, what's helpful to me as opposed to just reading the Atlantic article. So just a little plug, the book is out. It came out last week. Um, so it's available for purchase all over the world. But less certainty, more inquiry is definitely one of the guiding lights, um, one of the most important insights that Eric has offered to me. And I think that that's um, really powerful because it focuses on the process. It tells you, don't be overconfident. Don't be so sure of anything. There's never a right way to do something. There's never a right way to play a hand. You never know it all. You always need to be learning. You always need to be willing to change, to grow, to change your mind, to change your mindset, to change your ideas about how to play. One of the reasons that Eric is still competitive at the highest levels now, which isn't true of basically anyone else who was around for as long as he was and who started playing when he was, is he's constantly changing. He's constantly looking at what are the young kids doing? Okay, how's the game changing? What do I do? I mean, he also learned how to use PO Solver. And most people would say, ah, oh, that's stupid. I don't want to do that. You know, it's, I know everything there is to know. Um, and he says, no, I know that the game keeps changing. I need to keep up with it. I need to keep changing too. Otherwise, it's time to retire. Mm. Yeah, he's, he's very inspirational. And like you said, there's not many... If there is anyone else who's been around as long as he and uh, still are very, very competitive. Talking about decision-making, because you've, you've described how basically infinite the process can be in terms of what you can consider in the hand or any decision that you're making at the poker table within the hand can be dragged out into this huge mental exercise. But the mm -hmm. thing is, we have the time constraint. Yep. How does the time constraint influence the way you approach decision-making? Because from my own personal experience, I know that obviously there's different formats of the game. The live poker tournament tends to be on a slower side compared, compared to, let's say, decision-making while playing multiple tables online. Um, the available time is, is very much different. So the strategy that you can comfortably employ is, is somewhat different. So how do you measure in the time aspect here? Because we don't have um, infinite yeah. time. No, of course not. But, and that's something that I asked Eric very early on. And it's a matter of practice. It's a matter of knowing which questions to ask, which things to pay attention to. And then your mind can actually go through them very, very quickly in milliseconds. You don't even have to, you know, say it out loud. You know, your brain is actually calculating all of these things if you have the habit of paying attention to the right things. The way that I ultimately acquired a lot of these habits is in describing hands to Eric. He would stop me over and over and he would say, 
no, this is, I can't answer this question. What about this? What about that? And I'd say, I don't know. I, I, I can't answer that. I don't know how many times this guy has raised. I don't know what his uh, three vote percentage is. We're talking live poker. There are no statistics mm. yeah. that are being printed out for you. I don't know what his VPIP is. <laughs> how am I supposed to know all these things? I don't know what everyone's chip stacks are. I don't know this. I don't know that. But he was teaching me the things that mattered. He was teaching me the things that I should be attentive to. And so over time, I started being able to note more and more of them and it became second nature and it became much less effortful. You know, As I acquired more experience, as I acquired more base knowledge of what I was doing at the poker table, it became easier to keep track of all of these things. I found myself remembering things, details that otherwise I wouldn't because my brain had a base for them. I now had a way of processing them. I had a way of integrating them into an existing base of knowledge as opposed to just starting from absolute scratch. And so that was incredibly useful. And it taught me, you know, these are the most important factors when you're going through this decision process and you can do it quickly and it's possible. So the, I, I think at the most basic is actually something that Phil Galfon taught me, which is always ask why players are doing what they're doing, including yourself. Always just before you act, ask why. And that's a really, really important thing to remember. And what he said is even bad players have reasons for doing what they're doing. Don't get mad at them. Don't judge them. Figure it out. Figure out what their reason is. Figure out why they're doing it because then you can adjust. Then you can exploit them. Then you can play against them. And so oftentimes it's as simple of, as me saying before I act, why? Why am I about to do this? And what am I going to do? Think through the hand a little bit further on. You know, if I want to raise here, what am I going to do if I get three bet, if I get re-raised? How am I going to respond? And if my answer is I don't know, then I shouldn't be raising. Or I should figure out what I'm going to do right away. And and so it's just taking that moment of reflection and figuring out, okay, why am I doing this? What else could I be doing? Why are they doing this? What else could they be doing? Um, how am I going to respond? That doesn't, I mean, this sounds like a lot, but it doesn't take more than 10 seconds usually. And sometimes, yeah, it's more complex and that's when you use your time bank. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Why do you think Eric said that knowing a lot of languages is going to be very helpful? And obviously, because he thinks that learning poker is a bit like learning a language, but why? Yeah. why, why would he think so? It's a different vocabulary. It's a different world. It's a different part of your brain. And that's what every new language is. You're immersing yourself not just in new words, but in a new culture. Every culture has its own ways of thinking, its own habits, its own norms. And you need to learn what they are. You need to learn what that world looks like. And I think what he also meant, and he was actually right, I, I did some digging into this, is that the same parts of your brain, kind of the skills that you need to be good at languages. And this is, a lot of it is genetic, actually, whether you're someone who's capable of pick, picking up other languages or not. And a lot of it is learned. So a lot of it is learning the right habits for how to learn languages. But a lot of those skills are transferable. So it's the same parts of your brain are working on it um, because it's, once again, it's a different vocabulary, it's a different grammar, it's a different way of acting, of reacting, and these are all things that you have to do whenever you immerse yourself in a new culture and a new world. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's something to do with the way 
we have to process the information for for the decision like when we are listening to somebody speak we need to process the information that they're you know the sound that they're making we need to process right. it into the meaning uh, all the information that you gain at the poker table as all the previous history of the player doing such and such a thing all the previous history that you know about the strategic point of the decision maybe it's too abstract for just purely mathemat- mathematical approach and that's why approaching it as you know that part of brain that uh, that processes the language is the same part that helps you make a good decision in poker is uh... I mean that would make sense to me I, I haven't given it deep thought on that level, so I'm not sure, but it certainly is plausible. Mm. Yeah, because I just find it interesting. I've never heard of anyone ever mentioned that, you know, learn, learning languages or being fluent in multiple languages is going to translate into you being... Uh... It doesn't translate into being good at poker. It translates into being able to learn. Exactly, yeah, exactly. But I... So I uh... you, so you might still be bad at poker. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. But no, no, no. That that part of learning, that is the key here because we we see so many people. Like I said in the beginning, you know, so many people try, so many people aspire, so many people spend a lot of time, and yet the results don't come. And it's not always the lack of persistence. It's not always the lack of good information. It's not always the lack of the right approach Mm -hmm. but there's you know clearly sometimes a lack of something and uh, what i often see especially nowadays with with people digging into the solver solutions Mm -hmm. and all of those things the quote from eric less certainty more inquiry Mm -hmm. would apply so much absolutely absolutely i mean it's a quote that just applies to everything it's a it's my new life mantra It's so important to stay open-minded because a lot of times people, I think it just, a lot of times people have blinders on, especially people who use solvers a lot. They have much more certainty than they should. They say, you know what, this is this. I know how to play this spot. I did the, I ran this in the solver. I know exactly what to do here. That's not true. You never know exactly what to do. There's, there are always other factors, especially when you're playing against multiple people especially if it's not heads up if it's you know if it's more com- if it's more complex than a solver can really model do you really know that all of your inputs were accurate for this specific player that those rangers were 100% accurate do you know that that you know there's so many other variables solvers are wonderful i'm so glad they exist they're great to help you think through things to help you figure out how to think about bluffing to think about you know what card removal how to think about where where and when you're supposed to do certain things. But to me, that's all they are. They're a roadmap. They aren't something to memorize so that you say, okay, this is how I play this here. All right. I want to ask you, coming into this project, you must have had some sort of idea of how it's going to look like and how the process is going to be. How much the reality was different from what you thought it's going to be? Oh, I mean, I had no expectations. So I didn't think it was going to be much of anything. I had no idea. Like the only time I'd ever seen someone playing poker was in the movie Rounders, literally. 
Right. I'd never watched a televised poker game. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what I was getting into. I had no idea what this world was like. I didn't know if I'd be good or bad. I didn't have any expectations for that. I didn't know if I'd enjoy it or hate it. I had no expectations for that. I just didn't know. This was a completely foreign environment. Now, right away when I saw how much Eric loved the game, I thought, okay, you know, I'll, I probably am not going to hate it because this is someone who is clearly very intelligent and knows a lot about a lot of things and he is passionate about this game. So there's clearly something there. But it, other than that, I just, I had no idea. I definitely didn't expect certain things. Like I knew that it was mostly male, but I didn't know it was 97% male. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's insane. I didn't know that there, I'd go for days and days and days without seeing another female. Like, that was something I definitely didn't expect. Um, and there were, there were certain surprises like that just because it couldn't have even occurred to me that that would be the case. Why do you think that's the case? You mean the 97% male? I mean the 97% male, yeah. Um, I think it's the case for a few reasons. Um, I think historically, um, it, you know, Texas Hold'em was Texas Hold'em. <laughs> Played in the Wild West. There were guns and it was, there was a, there was some violence early on. And I think a lot of the media depictions of what early poker was like have stuck and people still think that it's like that, that, you know, there's the mob and cigars and all of these things. Um, and actually some of that is still true, <laughs> but, um, but, but it's also progressed. Now there are also Caltech PhD students who are playing poker. So, so the game has really changed, but I think that that image and the fact that it was all male to begin with was probably a barrier to a lot of females coming in because they thought it wasn't hospitable to them because it wasn't because none of those guys wanted a girl sitting at the table. And so women just didn't enter it. I think it also comes from a puritanical misperception of what poker is. Most people think poker is gambling. They don't realize that it's actually a game of skill, that it's very different from any other game in the casino, that it's its own thing. Um, most people don't understand that. And they say, oh, I don't, I don't want to gamble, so I don't want to play poker. Um, they don't realize that it's actually, on the scale of gambling, it's closer to chess than it is to roulette. Um, but that's a common misperception. And I think a lot of women are probably held back because of that. Finally, when you walk into a casino as a female and sit down at the lowest stakes, so I started off in tournament poker. I'm still a tournament player. Eric made me choose which one to specialize in because he said, you need to, you need to focus. They're two different games and the strategy is very different. So I focused on tournaments and he said, you have to build up your bankroll organically. You are not allowed to enter into tournaments that are too expensive. So I started off playing the Vegas dailies and nightlies for, you know, $35, $40. As a female, you walk into one of these and it's not a great environment. And you sit down and you, there's a lot of sexism. There's a lot of commentary that's not great. You know, it's something where if I had walked in and I wasn't a journalist doing this first story and I hadn't met Eric and I didn't know what was possible, I hadn't met any of the high roller guys. I didn't have, you know, all these guys standing behind me, basically, not literally, but in my mind. And I hadn't seen what was possible. If I had just seen that, I probably would have turned around and walked away and said, I don't want to play this game. Mm. So I think yeah. we need to work on changing the environment for women at the very lowest levels. And that's, that's very difficult because as I moved up in stakes, 
things changed. Players became very different. They were taking things seriously. But at those $35 tournaments, there are a lot of guys drinking and there to have a good time. And they don't want to be told what they can and can't say and what they can and can't do. Um, and it can be a very unpleasant situation. Hmm. Well, I think like in many other areas in life where there is a minority, until you reach the critical mass, it's it's pretty hard to, to change anything. Because, you know, if you're going to be the only woman at the table, regardless of how polite or how, you know, the culture is going to change, if you're the only one, you're still in the position of, of this uniqueness, which puts you under... It changes the whole dynamic, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and I've recently, not related to poker at all, just was interested in another study which talked exactly about this, this aspect of, uh, um, you know, female um, employees in the companies mm-hmm. and how if you're the only one in the department, the whole dynamic changes and the performance of the female employees was, was really poor. Whereas if you would put at least two people in the department so that you don't have this dynamic that you are trying to fit in because you don't have to, you no longer have to, you have your, your colleague, you have another woman with you. And then the whole dynamic of trying to fit in, trying to be part of a group changes. And then the group just normally acts as a group. Um, in poker, I mean, unless that happens, I, I don't think that... Uh, artificial change in, in the culture uh, is going to change anything. I'm going to push back on that. I disagree. I think that the in any organization we see in organizational psychology that the tone set from the top really matters. And a lot of times if you're the only woman in a group, the reason you feel uncomfortable is because the whole structure of the organization is making you feel uncomfortable. If the mm-hmm. CEO of that company said, I want to support women. I want more women here. We are going to, and publicly made a big speech about inclusion, about what was and wasn't okay. Believe me, the culture is going to change and more women are going to come in. That doesn't happen in poker. You don't see the floor manager of the Golden Nugget saying, this is not acceptable behavior. The next time anyone says this to a female, you will be kicked out and you will no longer be welcome in the Golden Nugget ever. That doesn't Mm. happen. If that starts happening, if you start getting change from the top, if the tone gets changed from the top, the culture will change. Mm. Yes, I absolutely agree with your point about it has to come from the top. and uh, But that's not going to be what's going to change. That absolutely has to happen because some of the things that are, especially the lower stakes environments which are happening right now, are unacceptable because, well, they... They are unacceptable, you know, and like you said, at the higher stakes, it's very uncommon that any of that is happening. Yes, it still happens. It still it does. happens. It does. But yeah, the change has to be, well, the pre- precedents have to be set, but, you know, in the end of the no, day. No, I think, I think after that happens, women, I think that we can't mistake cause and effect. I think that will be the cause that makes more women feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. If I knew that in this casino, I always felt comfortable, for instance, going to the Aria, because from day one, Paul Campbell, who's the tournament director of the Aria, had my back. And I knew if anyone was out of line, that person would be out of there. 
he knew who I was. That helped because I had originally come there with Eric and sat with the high rollers to watch them and to observe. But so, but I don't care that that was he. And then he did that for every single female. I've always, and a lot, and you see more women there. You see more women playing there because they know that if anything happens, the floor staff has your back, everyone has your back. And that's very different from other casinos where that simply does not happen. So I think that that tone from the top will actually make more women comfortable to try and to sit and to be part of the game. And all of a sudden you'll see your numbers going up. Until that happens, I don't think it will be possible. The change can't just happen with women throwing their bodies at the problem. It's not a question of numbers. It's a question of norms. It's a question of etiquette, of behavior, of what is and isn't acceptable. People get disqualified for other things. Why can't they get disqualified for calling me a... Yeah, absolutely. I, um, we might uh, need to bleep it out so that, <laughs> <laughs> so that we can put it without the explicit uh, marks. Otherwise, the, the audience is going to be even more limited. But yeah, I, I see your point, and it's. I don't even know what to say because yeah, you know the the, the environments that I I usually play in myself. I mean, apart from I mostly play online, which is sure. uh, you know <laughs> you don't know who's at the other side. But yeah. uh, I used to play a lot of live poker as well, and mostly that was Aria, that was Bellagio, that mm -hmm. was some other you know really high end casinos around the world. So I haven't seen perhaps the the ugly side of that yeah I, I can and only... you're male and I, i'm sorry yeah, yeah, you're yeah. male oh no no um, absolutely. so you're not I, I so i think a lot of it you're not going to notice exactly because yeah. it's not affecting you hmm. but it's interesting I'm, I'm actually i wasn't expecting to touch upon this subject but it is an interesting subject because even with all the publicity you know for example your publicity some other mm -hmm. uh, female professional poker players who became quite popular, quite Absolutely. out there. And, and you would think, well, now there's going to be more women in, in, in the sport. Let's call it a sport. And, yeah. and yet, no, it, it, it doesn't necessarily happen. And, uh, and, I, and I, hope, I hope, you know, I want there to be more women. I think there should be more women. I think it's something that women can benefit from. And also I think that they'll bring a lot to the game. So I hope I'll help. But as you said, there have been others before me. So I think a lot of things need to change. Um, and I think it starts also, it's not just from the top. It also starts with people like you, not just people like me. So people like me are going to speak out because I don't have a choice. At the beginning, I actually didn't a lot of time because I didn't feel comfortable. Now that I feel more comfortable, I always speak out if I see any inappropriate behavior. But it's also going to come from people like you, from the men, actually saying something if someone else is out of line, saying, hey, that's not okay. Stop doing that hey, that's not okay. You can't say that. But most people don't do that. Most people don't speak out because it's uncomfortable. Um, I've definitely, there are certain people in the poker world. Um, I try to be friendly. I try to smile. To me, it's fun. I really, I really enjoy playing and I have a wonderful time and I want that positive energy. But there are certain people who've sometimes crossed the line and I've called them out and I've said, hey, that's not okay. You can't say that. Um, and I don't think those people like me very much because it's never pleasant. Mm -hmm. But I'd do it again and I'd keep doing it. Yeah. Do you think it's some sort of resistance from, from the man in trying to keep this club exclusive sort of? Yeah. 
I think on some level, sure. And by the way, you know, I'm there are assholes everywhere and not just in poker. And there are some phenomenal people in poker. Like I've met some of the most wonderful, supportive, giving men in the poker world. So I do want to say that because it sounds like I don't want it to sound like I'm ranting, you know, all of these poker players. The vast majority of them are awesome, especially as you get as you, as you move up in stakes, as you're playing at a higher level, there's I've met so many amazing people, so many interesting people, and they've been nothing but nice to me, and it's been nothing but positive. Um, so, so I do want to say that that's possible, and I think that a lot of women who are able to get through the early stages experience that and start loving the game and start seeing what's possible. But in order to do that, you need to get past those initial hurdles mm. um, and and actually stick around. To, to see the possibilities. So I do, I do want to make sure that people realize that I'm not just, you know, bitter and railing. I think this is a great world. And I think that it can just become, it has a lot of room for improvement. Mm. Um, why, why not? Why not improve it where we can? Like, like we said, less certainty, more inquiry. Let's change. Let's be yeah. willing and open to change. And sure, I do think that some people probably think of it as you know, this exclusive boys club, but why not change that too? I think the game can be much more dynamic and fun. Don't you want new players in the game? Women are the last untapped market. That's the thing, you know, everybody's talking about, oh, you know, we, we are running out of new players. We're running out of, especially the new recreational players. We, we, we don't have new money coming in, but well, listen, you know, there's, <laughs> like you said, there's a whole untapped uh, potential there. And at the same time, I mean, we, we both know that everybody should theoretically realize that the recreational player, the weak player at the table, we are all there for him or her, right? <laughs> but even then, you always get one smart ass at the table who's going to berate the weak player, which is completely counterproductive. It ruins everything for everyone because that player is likely not to come back to that casino anymore so you're losing him for a longer period of time just because of your inflated ego that you wanted to express your uh, stupid feelings you know? yep. and, and and i i assume you know when when it comes to some of those people some of the same people who berate the the weak players when they get beaten by a woman and poker is a skill game they take yep. it personally they they've yep. been outmatched outclassed outplayed they feel stupid so they go into this defensive reaction of just being an asshole and it's pretty hard to see how that's gonna change but uh like you said if other people start speaking out because it's not uncommon that you know those people get get to hear opinions of other other players at the table of listen don't berate the recreational player that's stupid we are all suffering so keep it keep it calm you know but yeah i've never seen somebody defend a woman in that situation and saying exactly the same thing which would make sense of course yes i'm nodding for people who are listening i'm nodding right. vigorously <laughs> in response to what you're saying yeah <laughs> Well, interesting. I hope this is going to change because, yeah, so so many things need to change in the poker world. You know, we always talk about, you know, now recently in the online poker world, there is uh, Poker Stars, which, of course, you've been associated with uh, mm -hmm. 
they are trying out uh, a new format of the game, introducing antis to the cash game, uh, mm-hmm. Zoom pools, and everybody starts focusing in on, well, I say everybody, I mean most people. Most people start uh, focusing on, oh, that's just raising the rake. The games are going to die. There's no new players coming in. And you would think that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to get new players. They're trying to make the existing recreational players feel better of playing in the game, having more fun. They're trying it out. Mm -hmm. Yet, even in that environment where everybody's supposed to be rational and just say, okay, show me the numbers and then we'll talk. Instead, just going in full offensive. Now this is this is bullshit. You're trying to steal my money and that's it. No discussion. Yep. Yep. And I think it's so important to have that discussion and to stay open-minded and to stay rational and to stay open. I mean, you want to be an open community. You want to be welcoming. And somehow that's a lesson that gets lost on a lot of people. Yeah. And less certainty, more inquiry. That that Absolutely. should be the motto of, of uh, the community. Um, speaking of Master Seidel. Yes. His teaching style was quite interesting. And I gather this only from the article that I read in The Atlantic, when he basically taught you by asking questions. Mm-hmm. It, it must have been quite frustrating in the beginning for you um at what point did the things click at what point did you realize that what he's doing his approach is exactly what i need and it's gonna be helpful for me probably the moment i won my first tournament (laughs) okay so up until then then, then i was i was very upset with him (laughs) not really upset i mean i knew he was helping me but it was very it's frustrating you know i i was i was a beginner i wanted him to Tell me things like, you know, how do I play my pocket tens from the small blind when there's been a raise in a three bet be- before me? And, you know, what do I do? He's, he wouldn't tell me. He wouldn't say, well, <laughs> this is what you should do. He'd say, okay, well, let's think this through. You know, what's this person like? What's that person like? What are you trying to accomplish? How about this? How about that? And I just, I would say, I don't know. You tell me. What do you think? <laughs> And and so it was it was always quite frustrating. But then but then I started winning and um I realized what he was doing. We never, you know, it was a very different I at this point I've seen how a lot of people teach. Um and I've also done a little bit of introductory coaching myself. And this was so different. I mean, there were no range charts. There was no discussion of, you know, this is, these are the hands you open from this position. These are the hands you three bet. These are the hands you four bet. These are your bluffs. These are, no, there was none of that. It was so much more about building a base of understanding of how do I think through this? How do I think about whether this makes sense or not? Um, And the ranges came after because, and then I kind of built them myself, given Mm -hmm. what I knew about myself, what I was comfortable with, what I wasn't comfortable with. And then they changed as my game changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was about to say that, you know, ranges, you can look them up yourself. Absolutely. And there was, I had a very, first time I ever sat down with Phil Galfond and had a long conversation with him. 
he told me that he actually didn't want me to do that. He said, there's a fast way to learn poker and there's the right way to learn poker. And the fast way is I can give you a bunch of charts to memorize and you're really not going to get into trouble. I can tell you, you know, this is what you do here. These are the kinds of hands you play. These are the kinds of hands you three bet. Memorize this, memorize how to do that, memorize how to do that. And you're going to get very proficient very quickly and you all probably make a little money, but you're never going to be a great player and you're never going to go that far. And I don't want you to do that. I want you to actually learn how to think for yourself. Um, and that was very important advice very early on. So mm -hmm. Phil as well never gave me a single range chart. Fantastic. I, I, like, I like that all of your... Uh, well, let's say teachers, all of your mentors uh, followed the path of focusing on the decision-making process on on uh, on the way you think, as opposed to mm -hmm. just giving you the easy solution. Uh, it is beautiful. And and speaking of Phil Galfond, we we had we just published, in fact, the episode with him. And one thing that he said, which I found very interesting, is that the qualities that made good players say 10 years ago are still the same qualities today even though the environment changed we have solvers we have so many tools so much information but these qualities are still the same and i, I fully agree with him and, and and it really is about the way you think more so than what you memorized Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that really helped me in the long term. Sure, it took me a while to ramp up and to start mm -hmm. seeing results. But then once they started coming, they were much more consistent. Um, and I think that it was a much more lasting way of teaching me how to think and teaching me how to play. And it's something that I can apply even now. You know, I... For the last two and a half years, I I spent about I spent about two years just thinking poker full time, um, and then I had to start writing the book. Well, I, I'd been writing the whole time, but really put it together and start really changing gears. And I took a step back. Um, you know, if you if you look at my hand and mob page, you see very consistent results from you know, the end from 2017 until. 2019 and then they st and then they stop at like the summer of 2019 and that's the fall is when I started focusing on the book and I made one trip to Vegas and you see that one result and that was the last time I played in a in a major competition um, and so when you take that step back you have to think okay what can I do to stay competitive and I've been studying, I've been playing online, but I think the fact that I have the tools for thinking and for figuring out how do I, how do I see what's happening, I think that's so helpful. And that's something that I still have, even if the game has changed a little in the last few months, I can figure it out how it has changed and try to adjust and try to figure out, okay, because the thought process stays the same. The ranges may have changed, but the thought process stays the same and I can figure out the new ranges. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's that's something that, like you said, it doesn't matter how much time passes. We saw that uh, basically with Phil Galfon demonstrating it quite quite publicly yeah. with his Galfon challenge, you Absolutely. know, where he clearly was away from a game on a high level for quite a while. And of course he did preparation beforehand, but let's face it, you know, we already talked about it. A lot of people say they study eight hours a day for six months, yet somehow we don't necessarily see the results immediately. 
So the base, the perhaps the way they think is is flawed to begin with. But Phil clearly demonstrated that you know the same things that helped him before clearly still work. Absolutely. Yes, he's he's living and breathing proof of it. Yeah, and it's, he's so passionate about poker as well. It's so great to see, and I feel. Yep. He, you are a bit the same way. When you talk about poker, you sort of light up and, and you know, it seems to, you seem to have found the passion for the game. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, it helps that Eric and Phil both have it. They both love the game and they love it for the right reasons. You know, they're, they're not playing because they think, oh, I need to make money right now. They play because they love the game. There's lots of ways they can make money. They choose to play because they are passionate about the process, about the thinking, about how it challenges them um, and and how it, I think, how it evolves. It's a game that's constantly challenging and fascinating. And if at any point you say, oh, it's not interesting anymore, that's probably the point where at which you should stop playing poker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. How did you... Because I want to actually just go real quick into your victory in the Bahamas. Sure. The first huge tournament which brought you the most publicity throughout uh, this process. How did it feel? It must have been surreal. (laughs) It was surreal. Um, I was, and it was surreal on many levels. One, I mean, I obviously did not expect to win, but second, I mean, it was, I think, day four and I was exhausted. Like I hadn't been able to sleep since <laughs> since day two because <laughs> I was on so much adrenaline and so much, so many nerves. And so I I was just like in, in a daze. And I'd been playing for so long for so many days. You know how it is when you when you're in a multi day tournament, you have to wake up and do it again and do it again and do it again, and you just have to keep going and keep thinking and keep making decisions. And that last day, the the final table was really hard for me. Um, I had no practice. So I'd made final tables before, but the final tables I made were things like, you know, the Aria Daily or, you know, those, those daily tournaments. And I'd made one international final table before, but it was like a $200 turbo or something, a $90, I don't remember, $100 turbo, something like that in Dublin, euros then, not, not dollars, but, and which was great. I came in second. That was wonderful, but it was very different. Um, and it was a one day tournament, you know, and I hopped in. It was, I think, the last thing on the schedule I wasn't going to play. And then I just decided to hop in and ended up doing this. Five hours later, we, we were down to two. So, so it was a very different experience. I had, no experience playing a final table of a multi-day tournament. And the people at the table were very intimidating. I mean, there were people I'd seen play on TV, you know, someone like Chris Mormon, Harrison Gimbel. These are people I recognize. These are people who had lots of titles, who'd won a lot of money. And I realized, wow, these are real poker players. I'm not a real poker player. I'm an imposter. <laughs> what am I doing here? And, and it was a uh, it was really challenging um, and it was a hard day for me. I made a really, really big mistake early on. And in the book, I go into detail. In the book, this tournament takes, I think, 40 pages to play out. And I made a really big mistake early on and then was just nursing a short stack for most of the day. And it was both challenging, but also really really interesting to me to be put in that situation because I'd spent, so after I came in second in Dublin, 
um, the person who won had been just drunk off his ass. He'd been drinking the entire time and he was just, he was just gone. He was wasted and he won. And I was so mad at myself because I thought, wow, I, I should have won. But I really, I didn't know how to play heads up. I, it, it's a very different skill and I'd never really worked on it. And so for the two months leading up to PCA, that's actually all I studied. I just worked exclusively for two months on heads up play. I took courses. I worked with people who specialized in heads up and I just, that's what I did. And I think that really helped me as we got down to fewer and fewer players um, because I was much more comfortable playing shorthanded. I was much more comfortable with those situations. And the fact that that's what I had studied specifically, I think that was partly responsible for the fact that I was able to overcome the chip deficit. By the way, that was the result of my own bad play and a horrible mistake. That was not luck. That was just me playing bad poker. It happened within the first 10 minutes of the final table and I was nervous and I wasn't yet in the right mindset and it showed and I lost two thirds of my stack. So, <laughs> so that um, I had to make up for it for the rest of the time there, but at least I had the tools to do that. And I was able to do that. Um, I also had the mental tools to kind of get over it and to move on. Um, but I don't even remember. It's funny. I just did an interview um, earlier today and <laughs> the broadcaster played the clip of my exit interview after I won. And I didn't remember a single word of it. I didn't remember anything I said. I was in such a daze that she, she's like, so how does it feel going back to that moment? And I said, Honestly, I don't remember that moment at all. <laughs> I was just so tired and there was so much adrenaline and I was just coming off of this, you know, multi-day high that I just, I don't remember the words that came out of my mouth. I'm glad that I made some sort of sense, <laughs> but I think it was, it was very intense. So you made that huge mistake early on in the final time. How did you get over it? Um, Eric was watching and he saw the hand and he texted me as, right after he saw it. Mm -hmm. And he said, basically, yeah, you screwed up. That was really bad. Um, forget about it. We'll talk about it later. Move on. Forget how many chips you had. That was deep stack poker. Yeah, you had 80 blinds. You know how to play short stacked. Switch your mindset, switch to short stack game. It doesn't matter how many chips you had before. Play what you have now. Forget it. Put it out of your mind. And it was so important to me to see that in the moment and to know that he wasn't like, oh my God, you're bad. You're horrible. He said, just forget it. We'll, we'll talk about it later. Just move on. Keep going. Um, mm. And that was, that was very important. It's really important, I think, in terms of mindset to focus on, on the now and to not compare it to what I had before. What you had before doesn't matter. You know, the, the chips don't care whether they used to be in a pile of 80 big blinds <laughs> or not. You need to just play the game that you're playing. And yet it's a different game at 20 big blinds than it was at 80 big blinds. So now play that game. The game has changed. Change your mindset and don't say, oh man, I lost so much. I'm an idiot. Say, okay, I'm starting fresh. I'm starting with a stack. Let's do it. Mm. And beautifully said, the chips don't care that they used to be in a bigger <laughs> stack. That, that is quite nice. Uh, Maria, so what is what is in your book? Because you know what? After this conversation, I'm, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go and buy it. And I'm well, definitely going to put the that. link. I'm going to definitely put the link for, uh, for the listeners. What can people expect from your book? 
I think they can expect a combination of memoir. It's my, it's my journey. Um, it's my story. Also psychology, because that's kind of the background that I bring. And just it, my, my thoughts on, on poker and on life um, and a general approach. I mean, it's, more, it's much more about the general things. If people are looking for a poker strategy book, there are no range charts in the book. Um, you should go somewhere else. Michael Acevedo just published a great book. I'd go, <laughs> I'd go to that one. <laughs> That's the best one that I've seen re- come out in the last year that has nice range charts for you. Um, but that's not me. There are people who are much better at that than I am. So this is not going to tell you how to play your pocket tens from the small blind, but it will tell you how to think about it. And it will tell you how what I did, how I approached my mental state, how I approach different elements of the game. And I hope that it will give you more insight into poker from a very different perspective than other poker books. Mm. It's very interesting. I'm sure the book is going to be really useful for poker players. And it's great to see that finally there's a book about poker that is interesting for the mainstream reader. And that's something that we need because you know what? The work that you do and, and your story is inspiring for people who want to try and get into poker and also for women. And we need more women in the game. So hopefully the work that you do is going to bring more people into the game. And I'm sure that every professional poker player out there can selfishly just think, oh, that's great. We need more people. Because <laughs> well, we do so. need more people. I hope so. I hope it I hope it does bring more people to the game. Oh well. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate Thank you. Thank you. On. Thank you uh, so much for having me. It's been a really fun conversation. Oh yeah, I really enjoyed it. Well, and best of luck and Thank keep promoting you. the book. Like I said, Thank I you. hope it brings more people into into poker. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a regular email from me personally where I share my key takeaways from each latest episode, go to runchexpodcast.com and subscribe to my newsletter. And of course, I would really appreciate if you subscribe to my channel on YouTube and rate my podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or any other platform where you normally listen to your podcasts. This really helps.